Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, as we give our attention to your word, we pray that you would use it to transform us, to invite us into a life of faith, a walk through the wilderness that we experience in our lives, Lord, trusting that our Redeemer is good and has good purposes for us. We pray that now your spirit would not only cause us to understand these words with insight, Lord, but be able to receive them with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. With it being an introduction, I want to jump right in to the Gospel of Mark and, and tell you five things about this Gospel before we look at the passage. As we turn to a new book here, it is one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament. And there are five things I'd like you to know about it that might introduce you to it. The first one is this, that Mark was writing with the Apostle Peter as his main source. In the second century, Papias, who was an early Christian bishop who knew the Apostle John, he, he uh, wrote about how Mark had written down Peter's teaching about Jesus, and it was the basis for his gospel. We know from 1 Peter 5.13 that Mark was with Peter in Rome when 1 Peter was written. And so we understand from history and with some other reasons that in many ways what we're reading when we're reading Mark's gospel is we're reading Peter's gospel. Uh, the perspective of Peter about the life of Jesus. Second thing I'd like you to know is that Mark was writing with a Roman audience in mind. Further tradition about the occasion for the gospel of Mark ties it to Peter giving a number of addresses in Rome to the military, nonetheless, about Jesus and Mark. He's giving these addresses about Jesus and Mark is recording what Peter was teaching. In the book itself, you can see times where Mark explains Jewish traditions. Mark chapter 7, when we get there, you'll see something that would have been common to Jewish people. Mark explains it because he's speaking to a Roman audience that might not be quite as familiar. 
I think the Roman audience is important because like the book of Romans that we studied last year, Mark is concerned to make clear that God is saving a people to be his church that goes beyond the Jewish ethnicity and extends clearly to the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. The third thing we see is that Mark was writing approximately 30 years after the resurrection. Throughout the early years of the church, there were many people still alive from the early days of Jesus' time and teaching. And in the early days, there were so many of them that they could sort of entrust the oral tradition and passing along and the witnesses among them to be able to keep a close understanding of who Jesus was, what his purposes were. But as time went on, writers like Mark saw fit to write it down out of necessity that the truth about Jesus wouldn't be lost. And so what we see here is Mark's recording of Peter's testimony. While witnesses were still available and memories were still fresh, recording the life of Jesus accurately as eyewitnesses to the birth of the Christian church. Fourth, Mark was writing to a people facing suffering. The Christians in Rome were growing in number. They faced some level of persecution throughout the late first century at all times. It ranged from intense persecution and being blamed for the fire of Rome by Nero, all the way to things like losing support of their families as they identified deeply with Christ by faith as a new citizenship gathered around Christ. They were often marginalized by society. This decision to follow Christ was a decision to be identified by faith with a new people, a new family. But it also meant costly moments of loss and suffering. The people receiving this gospel, they needed to know whether they were being duped or whether the teaching of Jesus himself pointed to the fact that following him would be costly. The cost of discipleship while awaiting the coming promises of God, is a major theme in Mark. We're going to see over and over again the question, are you willing to be identified with Jesus as a member of his family, even if it's costly? The fifth thing that we see that I'd want you to understand is Mark was writing the gospel as just the beginning of the good news. You notice in verse 1 it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1 is not just an overly plain stated intro. Like it doesn't get any easier than this. Hey guys, we're starting. He's not just doing that. He's saying in essence that this whole gospel, beginning to end, even when we see Christ risen, this whole gospel that lays out the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that is, it's the foundation of the promise of God's salvation, but it's only the beginning of what is in store for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This gospel is the beginning of the good work of God's promises in the foundation on which we can hope to experience them fully. So like all beginnings, there needs to be a great introduction. And this 13, first 13 verses is it. If we look closely at this first 13 verses with that kind of background in mind, we're going to see that this passage has one main idea that we can track all the way through the different scenes that we see. And here it is. The main idea we find is that Jesus has come to gather and lead a renewed people for God. 
As Mark is trying to introduce us now to Jesus, he wants us to get our head wrapped around, who is this Jesus? Why is he so significant? What is he doing? Now, there's a lot of things we could bring to the table, maybe even you today as we begin this series. You think you know who Jesus is. You think you have a good sense of what he taught and what he did and why he did them. But so many times we've brought our own perspectives and perceptions. And we find when we encounter the real Jesus that even those need to be transformed and changed. Well, in this passage, we see Jesus has come to gather and lead a renewed people for God around his own purposes and his own authority. Everything about this passage we're going to see is about Jesus gathering a people. The focus on baptism is about identifying a people. It's about Jesus gathering a kingdom of citizens around himself to know God and be his dwelling. God has always been about redeeming a people who will truly fulfill the calling of bearing his image in the world. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness to give them a new identity and lead them through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. The story of the Old Testament is about the failure of the people to live up to that calling to truly be God's image bearers. And then the question of how God would yet fulfill the promise of his salvation. And by this time, we're moving from the Old Testament, here in the Gospel of Mark, to the beginning of the New Testament. By this time, the people are waiting on God to do what they could not do for themselves. The imagery of Israel and their calling to be God's people as a light to the Gentiles still remains. There's a new temple in Jerusalem at this time. They have a quasi-government they're in control of, but yet under Roman rule. There are priests and sacrifices going on. But is that what God is doing? Is God there? Is that his purpose? Do they have everything they need? Mark is going to force us to see that God was calling a people to the wilderness to do a new thing. That's why he sets us up here in the beginning where we're going to see every time we move into a new section, we hear the emphasis on the wilderness. Mark Mark wants us to see why Jesus is such a big deal. Because so much of what the people knew in Jerusalem was nothing like what God had intended for them. Jesus came and changed all that. That is why Mark is writing this gospel. To invite us in to see that truth. So he wants us to see why Jesus is such a big deal. He shows it to us in kind of three movements in this passage. And we're going to walk through that. The first one we see in verses 2 and 3. If you look at it, the first thing we see is that Jesus is the Lord who has come as he promised. As soon as Mark finishes his first introductory sentence, uh, sort of the heading for the book in verse 1, 
He jumps into a set of Old Testament prophetic promises of which Isaiah's promise is most significant. You know, you'll, if you look closely, he says, Isaiah the prophet said, then he quotes Malachi, and then he quotes Isaiah. And it was common at that time to, to just name the most prominent of the people who you were quoting from. And so he references what Isaiah had been saying here. Verses 2 and 3 are references to these Old Testament promises from Malachi and Isaiah about how the Lord himself would become and be their salvation. And to, to really understand what, what Mark is doing, we got to do a little bit of algebra. Who's excited to do public math today? All right, raise your hand if you know the transitive principle. I'm not going to test you. You guys, come on, you, more of you know the transitive principle. Are you serious? Well, let's do a little algebra today. All right, listen, the transitive principle looks like this. You, you know it. Transitive property is a fundamental property in algebra. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals... All right, see, you guys knew it. You just didn't remember the name. In a sense, this transitive property is how Mark is showing us the first answer to the question, who is Jesus? Why is he so significant? Or who is this Jesus really? To get the right answer, you have to do a little bit of algebra. Step one, the A equals B part, he says that the Lord, notice the capital letters in verse 2, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, you don't see the capital letters there, do you? I'm going to have to explain this to you. There's a whole language thing going on here that it's easy to miss in our English New Testament. What he's going to show us is A equals B, the Lord, and, and it's going to be Jehovah, the, the personal name of God, equals the one who will come after the messenger crying in the wilderness. Notice the messenger is crying out and saying, there's one coming. You see that? That one that is coming is equal to the Lord. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, that may seem really obvious, but before we just run off, let's slow down. We get used to hearing the idea of the Lord and attribute it as a title of authority or royalty in general. But our English word Lord is used in the Old Testament to translate two different Hebrew words. And that can be a little problematic. And so what happens is if you read your Old Testament... Whenever in Hebrew you, you find the words Lord in its capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, it is translating usually the word Adonai, which means master. Sometimes it's even used of other types of masters to refer to them as Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. So that's what happens in the Old Testament when you see Lord. But then the second translation of Lord, you'll find in your Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps. When it's the Lord in all caps, it represents the personal divine name of Israel's covenant-keeping God, Jehovah or Yahweh. Like, the God we are hoping in. Now, it's interesting, if you look here, you see prepare the way of the Lord, and it's capital L-O-R-D. Now, that's because that's translating a Greek word here in the New Testament. But the quote comes from the Old Testament. 
And in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, where this quote comes from, prepare the way of the Lord, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, this is what's happening. The one who comes after, B equals C, the one who comes after the voice crying in the wilderness equals Jesus, who is the Lord Jehovah. So he says, you know, he gives this thing, A equals B. The Lord Jehovah equals the one who comes after the messenger in the wilderness. The one who comes after the voice crying in the wilderness equals Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is the Lord Jehovah who has come to save his people. This is what, this is what Mark is doing. The Lord Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is Jesus. The fulfillment of this promise that the Lord himself would come is the coming of Jesus himself. It's further confirmed for us when at this baptism in verse 9 and 10, the voice says, this is my beloved son. A unique pronouncement over him. Now let me say it plainly. You cannot quibble around making Jesus an interesting teacher and putting him on par with other religious leaders in history. To believe in the Jesus that Mark is presenting to us is to believe that God himself has come in the person of Jesus, taken on flesh to dwell with and lead his people on to all the promises of the gospel. To lead them on to eternal life when they could not lead themselves. Anything else one would try and say about Jesus is offensively diminishing to his glory if Jesus is the Lord Jehovah who has now come and is present with us. This is what Mark is doing by using algebra. That Jesus is the Lord who has come to lead us. So it's the Lord who is coming, and now we see as he delivers that, the Lord comes in the person of Jesus. And so the second thing we see is that Jesus is the, is the power behind the promise of the gospel. So, so he sets us up in verse 2 and 3 to, to equate Jesus with Jehovah in the Old Testament and know that it's God who's come in a special way. Then when we turn to verses 4 through 7, we get this introduction to John the Baptist. It gives us a bunch of things about him. Uh, he's appearing in the wilderness. His, his baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you start to see this like transformative sense. Like the people coming out, they need to repent. They need to leave off from what they trusted before. And they need to trust a new thing. They need to turn from their sin and be renewed deeply by God. Something's broken. Something's off. And therefore, they need a new work from God. And so we, we see this as John is in the wilderness and he's baptizing them. And it's all the people from Judea and Jerusalem going out. There's a big movement. Notice John's clothed with camel's hair and he wears a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The imagery here actually is to remind us that he's a prophet like the prophet Elijah who is identified as the one who would be, that the next prophet that would prepare the way for the Lord would be one like the prophet Elijah in the wilderness saying, prepare the way. And so we see all of this imagery about who he is. 
And Elijah, you know, his, if you were to read the Old Testament and think about Elijah, the thing that's most powerful about him is God's promise to Elijah that when he thought he was the only one who had remained faithful to God, God said, no, I have a remnant of people that I'm gathering. So, so we see John the Baptist preparing a remnant for God. People that are coming out to him. And, and there's this promise in what he's doing. He's baptizing them. He's calling people out into the wilderness from Jerusalem where they're supposed to have known God and asking them to be washed and cleansed and prepared to really actually know God. Repent. Come out into the wilderness. Find God here, not down in that temple. This is a really challenging message. That Jesus is being prepared to actually steward. So it, baptism becomes this powerful symbol here. So much that John becomes known as the baptizer. Preparing this people. Now let me try to make this simple for us. Because so many of you might be asking, why is John baptizing people? Like where did that come from? Is there, are people being baptized in the Old Testament? Is, did John invent baptism? There's lots of questions you may have. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what's being symbolized by John's baptism because it's important for us. One of, one of the powerful things baptism symbolizes is being washed and set apart for a new identity, the preparing of a people. It symbolizes being set apart for a new identity and being washed, the washing away of the old life and its association in preparation for a new one. Washing rituals were... Regularly, you, you find them in the Old Testament, these washing rituals for preparing to meet with God. They were a common part of Jewish culture. Scholars debate how exactly John chose this connection. But here in the Gospel of Mark, the indications and symbolism, they suggest the following meaning for John's baptism. Uh, he, he became known as John the Baptist. He was a prophet. He didn't need some other form or authority to decide how to do things. So he chooses a symbol, and that symbol is full of meaning that I think can really connect in this text. Well, it'll, it'll make sense. So, so washing rituals show this picture of passing through the waters that is significant. And so here are a few things that the baptism means that he's doing. First, he's, he's drawing symbolism for when God made his covenant with the Old Testament people. When God made the Old Covenant with Moses, he made it in the wilderness at Sinai in the book of Exodus, and he told Moses to have the people wash themselves, particularly the garments, because he was coming in a cloud to the mountain and was going to speak with them. God was going to come near to them, and they need to wash themselves to be prepared. They were going to hear his voice. Notice in our passage, they hear God's voice in the place where they've been washed. Here the people in the wilderness are being washed in the river in preparation for the Lord's coming. Now it's here at hand. Second, John's baptism kind of taps into another set of symbolism. When God set aside Israel for a special relationship with him, he brought them out of Egypt by passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Maybe you remember that. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And when it was time for them to really inherit the promise, they passed through the Jordan. God rolls back the waters of the Jordan, and they pass through the waters of the Jordan 
into the promise. You notice that, that when it says that John was baptizing in the wilderness, it, it wasn't, they don't just say he found some water. It emphasizes each time they came and they were baptized in the Jordan because the Jordan is representative of entrance into the promise of God. The people passed through the Jordan into the promised land and they were given what they had always been unable to accomplish themselves by God as a gift. The ark of God, God's presence, went before them in that moment because it would be God himself that would lead them to be victorious in the promised land. Which later when you ask the question, why does Jesus get baptized? He goes through the waters with them into the promises. The third thing that John is tapping into with his baptism is because of the failure of Israel to keep the old covenant, they sinned, they rebelled against God. Because of that failure, God promised that one day he would make a new covenant relationship and come and dwell with and save his people by the power of the Holy Spirit transforming their hearts. They were going to need a deeper transformation than just being called into this promise by God, than being called out of Egypt. Because in essence, they were called out of Egypt, but the Egypt was a bit too deep in them. If they were going to really follow God into all the promises, they were going to have to be transformed. And, and, And over time, we get this promise that a day is coming when God is going to do a new thing. We read about that promise in our scripture reading this morning. But in another place, in Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27, it connects the cleansing with water as a symbol of this deeper cleansing and renewal given by the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist, he takes all these symbols and brings it together, and he says, preparing to be a new people of God, that that you need to be washed, you need to be cleansed, you need to be ready for this coming promise, and it's just a symbol of what you need, because in verse 7, he says, there's one coming after me that this baptism that is a washing is just a symbol of, and he is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now listen. If you're wondering, what is baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? Well, right here, what we see is baptism in in the Holy Spirit is very simple. The real coming to faith of people where the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and life, gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh towards God, begins to renew you and transform you so that you can, from the heart, begin to follow Christ. You don't become a Christian without the Holy Spirit making you new. And only God can do it through calling on Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the baptism we really need that is pictured in every other baptism. An inward, deep transformation that every person needs. And Jesus is the power behind John the Baptist's promise. When he comes, the power has come on the scene that would create a new covenant for the people of God in which the dwelling place of God would now become their hearts. They would be a people transformed by the Holy Spirit. We see all three portions of this imagery at work here. Cleansing to prepare a visitation from God crossing through the waters of the Jordan to receive the promise of God, the promise of a new covenant relationship through the washing of the Holy Spirit. Now with that as the background, Mark focuses us in on the significance then of what is happening. God is doing this new thing. And to be a part of it, listen, to be a part of what Jesus was doing, it wasn't enough to just be born in Israel. 
The people of God that will receive his promise would not be the ones gathered in Jerusalem around the temple, but the ones that were willing to go out into the wilderness and be prepared by John to wait for a deeper, more transforming work of God himself. Because John's message was be prepared, it begged the question, be prepared for what? The answer, be prepared to confess you need the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that only Jesus can bring. Through the new covenant, he is establishing at his coming. John was baptizing them to help them realize they didn't just need a finishing touch on their religion. They needed a whole new beginning. An entire fresh start. Led by Jesus himself. They needed to realize that everything about them needed transformation and renewal all the way to the heart of who they were otherwise all the old testament promises were not their promises this is what jesus had come to say but in mark's arranging of this message this is exactly what jesus had come to give them the fulfillment of all the promises what about you, though? Matt asked why you were here, what brought you here today. Have you recognized the same need in your life? Maybe you've dabbled in Christianity and you come today and you hope to add some meaning to your life, and I, I don't want to discount that. Listen, whatever brought you here, sense of emptiness, like things aren't complete. A longing that there might be something more significant spiritually that you really need. A hope to just get some help for what you're trying to make out of your life. I, whatever brought you in is fine. But have you ever realized that Jesus is calling you to leave behind what you thought was most important in life to really discover what God has for you? This is, what, this is what the move from trusting ourselves to trusting Jesus really looks like. I thought I just needed a little bit of God and I needed to be transformed entirely from the heart. Like if you, I, I just want to ask you, this is what it means to be a Christian, fundamentally, to have that experience. <laughs> and I just want to ask you, have you ever recognized in yourself your utter need for God and God alone to make you spiritually alive? Have you recognized how deeply dead in your trespasses you are spiritually towards God? So bankrupt that you can't make yourself spiritually alive. You can't cut yourself away from the bondage to that sin that continues to trouble you. And come just desperate before God saying, God, you alone can make me alive. God, save me. <laughs> if I got to go out in the wilderness and leave everything behind to find you, I want that. That is what Jesus has come to do. To invite you to come out and follow him. Have you ever considered how deeply your heart would need to change if you were to really live for God and love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? It would take nothing less than the work of the Holy Spirit within you, which Jesus alone can give to those who come to him by faith. 
And that is the significance of what Mark wants you to see in this book. Jesus is here to lead you where you cannot take yourself. And so we see it in the third point. Jesus personally leads us from the wilderness to the promise. It's not just that he called him out into the wilderness, but when he was there, Jesus shows up. So the first time we see Jesus, he's out there personally affirming everything that John is doing and saying. John's my guy. I'm showing up. I'm in on what he's been preparing. That's why he goes out there. As Jesus' ministry begins, he goes out to the people gathered in the wilderness, not into Jerusalem. He passes through the waters of the Jordan with them, ready to lead them into the real promises of God if they will follow. The same voice that spoke to the people gathered in the wilderness after God had called them out of Egypt is now speaking to them now and declaring that this is his beloved son. For Mark, it is significant that it is this group of people Jesus came to. The people in the wilderness longing for God, not pretending everything is just fine. Jesus has come to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. He's come and identified with them entirely through this baptism and will personally lead them into the promises of God in a way that they cannot fulfill for themselves. Jesus has come to the people in the wilderness. He he does it literally here. So we can see symbolically that this is how he always saves us. By calling us out of where we've been. So that he can transform us and bring us into where he's taking us. And only those who are willing to trust him by faith will really be his people and share in the promises. He's come to the people in the wilderness. The voice is crying In the wilderness, the wilderness is a powerful symbol throughout the Bible. Every section in this introduction focuses on it and references it. The voice is crying in the wilderness. John came preaching there. The people of Jerusalem and Judea are going out into the wilderness. It's where Jesus goes to be baptized. And then he's driven even further. The wilderness is not only real here, it's symbolic, biblically speaking. Five things it's symbolic of. The wilderness is a place of destitution. Where does God invite us to go meet him? This sort of wilderness. Even, you know, as we think about the English word wilderness, we think of trees and forest. This was a desert. Nothing survives there. It's a sort of wilderness that can't sustain life naturally. Only God can sustain you there. And to give us life, God calls us to that place. The wilderness is a place to meet God. When God is establishing Israel ultimately as his people, he brings them out of Egypt to worship him and make a covenant with them in the wilderness. You know, I just want to say a pastoral thought to you. Some of you feel like you're living in a wilderness. You're asking the same question the Israelites asked when they came out of Egypt. Did you bring me out here to kill me? And some of you are going through a difficult time of testing and trial. You would say, right now I've been walking through the wilderness in my life. And you're asking this question of God, why did you bring me out here? Why am I going through this? And you might think, like the Israelites, you'd be tempted to think God brought you out there to destroy you. But the wilderness is a place God brings his people to really meet him. 
for who he is, to see what he can do to sustain them. And right now in the midst of what you're going through, i got to believe that God has a purpose to meet you in a special way because every time God has called me into a wilderness season in my life of difficulty and trial, He has met me there in a special way that I can't forget. I I just want you to know, if you're in the wilderness, God brings His people out there to meet with them so they can see in a fresh way. They don't need anything else. The wilderness is a place of exodus. It is a place where you leave behind the old. Israel came out of Egypt, but the wilderness revealed that there was still a lot of Egypt in them. And one of the reasons we have to be called out of where we are as a people into trusting Jesus in this new identity is because we always try to bring all the things we're comfortable with when Jesus says, come to me. But he says, you can't have that. You're going to have to put that down. We're walking through the wilderness. You're going to have to travel light. There are some things you're going to have to leave behind if you really want to know me. The wilderness is a place of testing. We often think of ourselves as strong, but the wilderness is a place of testing in the Bible in order to reveal our real need for God. And then lastly, the world, the wilderness is a place of reorientation. Moses has to leave Egypt to meet God in the wilderness so that he can fulfill his calling. The people of Israel needed to get out of Egypt to see who they really were and what their true calling was. So they weren't slaves, they were the people of God. The wilderness is a place of reorientation. And part of what all of us need is is to come out to this place that confuses us, to be willing. God, when he invites us to really know him, he says, you're going to have to step away from everything that you thought you knew was good, and you're going to have to trust that where I'm taking you is even better, but I'm going to make you new. I'm going to transform you. And, And this is what Jesus came to do, to invite us into that experience. So because of all that rich symbolism, it's a powerful way for Mark to ask us, Have we gone out to Jesus in the wilderness? Listen, ministering to to all of you at times, as you come to take a step of faith, it can cost you difficult seasons in your relationships with family members that don't understand why you all of a sudden care about living a spiritual life, a godly life. Jesus says, come on now, trust me. Trust me, I've got family for you. Sometimes people can't see that new thing until you take this first step out. Have we been willing to part with our cultural assumptions about God and what really matters? Like as, as a church, like if we're going to go to a fresh place with where God wants to take us, what are we going to have to leave behind as a congregation? as a people to fulfill God's calling on our church, on our lives as individuals. Some of you right now are facing moments where God is saying, I've got something for you, and you're clinging hard. You wonder, do do I really want to take this step? Have we let God show us our deep need for Him? Have we seen that without the sustaining grace of God, our sin would overwhelm us? Have we been willing to leave behind what we know to let Jesus lead us into what we really need? Maybe maybe God's been challenging you lately about what he wants to do in your life. And you've just been at kind of a, a spot where 
You're asking yourself, do I really want to walk out in that? Do I want to take this step? Can God meet me out there? Will he sustain me? The place he wants to take us good? That can be in big things and small things in your life. But I hope you could see through this passage that in verse 12 and 13, we get some help. Especially for you, if you've been overwhelmed by your sense of failure to temptation and wonder whether Jesus can really deliver on his promises and overcome the power of sin and darkness in our lives, Jesus can be trusted to succeed where we have failed. You know, in the face of temptation, we have failed time and time again, but we see after he identifies with the people, he goes further out where the people do not go. He faces the battle against Satan and his temptation that we have failed at time and time again, and by his dependence on the Father and the provision of the angels, he is successful he is successful then because he will continue to be successful because Jesus can lead us into the promises of God and he will face that kind of temptation temptation to turn back over and over and again in Mark's gospel and others who will say you don't need to suffer you don't need to go out you don't need to go to that cross but he'll go to the cross where he'll pay for our sins after living a sinless life in the wilderness of the world. And he'll conquer the enemy we can't conquer for ourselves. You know, there are giants in the land, and the land is filled with the giant of Satan and his deception over our lives, which we ignore. But over and over, we see Jesus overcoming the things that destroy his people so that when he rises from the dead, the last enemy is defeated, and we can trust ourselves fully to him. And in the wilderness, on this day, in this passage, for 40 days, Jesus is victorious. And he's not just victorious for himself. He's victorious for his people so that we would know we can trust him when he calls us out into the wilderness. Some of you are wondering, can I trust him? Well, this passage says, he is entirely devoted to finishing the work of bringing us into all the promises of God. And if you will follow him, he personally will lead you there. I ask us to bow our heads and close our eyes as we get ready to receive the Lord's Supper. Just take a moment and Ask the Lord what he wants to say to you and for you to respond to from these words. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today's the day where you need to just say, God, I'm willing to turn from my sin and identify with Jesus and trust him as my Savior. Just right now, even in the quietness of the moment, you can call upon the Lord for salvation. Maybe you're here and you find yourself in the wilderness. In your own life, God's challenging you to take some steps of faith. You're wondering if you can trust where he leads. And you just need to resolve with the Lord that you're going to go wherever he will take you. Maybe you've just been clinging to some sin hindrance that has stopped you from really walking with the Lord. 
and saying, that's left from what's behind. It's time to let go of it and walk forward. Just for a moment, you just respond to the Lord there where you're at. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your promise and provision. Lord, you make a way through the desert, rivers in the wilderness for your people. God, we know we can trust you. And I just pray right now for those who may need to make decisions today before they leave this time of worship, that you'd give them the courage or just to respond to you and say, yes, I will follow. I will go out there. I will do what you've called me to do. Would you strengthen us? In Jesus' name, amen.